Hello, Clarice. You're listening to Cinematicon Ex Mortis, the horror movie discussion podcast hosted by some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I mean, some Heather and a nice Kenny. And today, we're going to be talking about The Silence of the Lambs from 1991. Um, this was Heather's pick. I think this is one of your favorite movies, right, Heather? Yes, definitely. I like it as well. I'm a big fan. Although I can't say I'm uh, an expert on the series. I've seen... Uh, well, we'll get into how this fits into a larger series. But just for the record, I've seen Manhunter, Red Dragon, Hannibal, this one, and then that's it. I haven't seen like the TV show or you know whatever. I haven't read any of the books. Uh, what about you, Heather? Uh, nope, just this. This is an isolated one-off for me. Interesting that it's like one of your favorites, but you didn't uh, you didn't ever like feel the need to explore the larger series. I think I'm traumatized by sequels. Mm. And so like I wanted to keep it pristine and not ruin it. I I don't actually know anything about the sequels. I know that people have like a lot of different opinions and some people say it's they're amazing and some people hate them. And I'm just like, you know, I've just I've learned my lesson and I kind of just don't want to mess with a good thing, you know? Yeah. OK, so I guess we should talk about uh, the basic facts about the movie. So for anybody who doesn't know, uh, we will be spoiling the film. So make sure to go see it before listening to this, as always. Um, but this movie was released in 1991. It's an adaptation of a 1988 Thomas Harris novel of the same name one in a series of novels featuring the psychopathic psychiatrist Hannibal Lecter, and the second to be adapted to film following Michael Mann's 1986 adaptation of Red Dragon, which would then later on be adapted again into a film called Red Dragon. So confusingly, there are two adaptations of that one uh, with different titles. Uh, Silence of the Lambs was directed by Jonathan Demme, uh, and it stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, and Ted Levine. And it was written by Ted Talley and scored by Howard Shore, who we're seeing again. He also scored The Fly, which was our last episode. So that's kind of a neat coincidence. Mm -hmm. It was a huge commercial and critical success. It is one of only a few films ever to win all of the Big Five Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. In this case, Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm -hmm. Um... So, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, that I needed to say all that. It seems like pretty much everybody has already heard of this movie. Yeah, so we'll do a little plot summary. Uh, and I think, Heather, you you did it this yeah, time. So why don't you take it away? Okay. Ambitious FBI trainee Clarice Starling is on a mission to climb the professional ladder while gaining respect in the boys' club atmosphere. Clarice has aspirations to work in the behavioral science unit under Jack Crawford, who has just chosen her for the task of questioning Dr. Hannibal Lecter, an imprisoned former psychiatrist slash serial killer infamous for cannibalizing his victims. The purpose of this assignment being the hope that picking Dr. Lecter's brain will help solve another serial murder case currently plaguing the Bureau. 
this case, having claimed five young women so far at the hands of Buffalo Bill, a name coined for him due to the women being stripped of large patches of skin. After meeting Dr. Lecter, Clarice forms a kind of rapport with him, despite their interactions being one psychological game after another. A sixth victim is found, and a seventh girl is missing, this time the daughter of a senator, putting more pressure on Clarice than ever to solve this case once and for all. She has no choice but to buy into Dr. Lecter's mind games and put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Nice. So, um, yeah, I guess we'll launch into the discussion. Um, okay. So... I was watching this uh, with my girlfriend and she hates when I make her watch horror movies and uh, sometimes, as we've talked about, gets mad at me and won't speak to me afterward. Um, Mm -hmm. But in this case, partway through the movie, she asked, is this really a horror movie? Um, So that kind of, that's my first question. Do you think this is uh, actually a horror movie? My first question is, do you have Alzheimer's? Because... Do you not remember what I asked you when we decided to do this? Did you say, is it a horror movie? I was like, hey, um, does Silence of the Lambs count as a horror movie? And you were like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, cool. Can we do that then? And you were like, yes. That was like literally the first conversation we had about this. I obviously do think it's a horror movie. Um, It's on my list Uh of greatest horror movies ever. Right. Um, But I know that a lot of people might disagree. Um, and that might be part of the reason it won those Academy Awards because because mm-hmm. um, they were tri- like they got tricked into watching a horror movie. Yeah, like usually they don't like to give the award to a horror movie or a comedy. They'll only give it to them if they sort of have drama elements or like somehow they feel classier or something. Yeah. And so for that reason, then people will say it's not a horror movie. I think it's a horror movie just because it's not super scary or whatever it's it's definitely a horror movie well i think time might have something to do with it too like um when this came out i think it was pretty extreme compared to at least like most mainstream movies like what they would depict in terms of violence um yeah and the subject matter is like so dark and so gruesome yeah but since this came out, you know, you have like CSI and Bones and there's like a million TV shows and movies and Mind Hunter now. Like there's so many things about serial killers and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, true crime stories and stuff that are gorier and even more disturbing maybe than Silence of the Lambs and that have sort of found their way into the mainstream so i think looking back it might be easier to say oh this is just like a dark crime drama it's not a horror movie whereas at the time none of that stuff existed yeah not not in the way that it does today true crime is kind of having like its renaissance right now yeah but apart from the subject matter being dark and disturbing and violent I also think there are sequences in this movie that still are pretty scary. Um, like when Clarice investigates the garage, the, um, it's, oh, not, yeah. it's like the, uh, the storage unit. Yeah. Storage unit. She's kind of looking around in there with the flashlight and you don't know what's going to jump out at her. And then she finds mm-hmm. a human head in a jar. Yeah. 
that whole scene is is pretty scary. It's pretty effectively set up too, where she kind of can't get out of there if she needs to, right? Because she had mm-hmm. to carefully climb underneath the propped open uh, garage door kind of thing in order yeah, to get in. There's a lot of anxiety happening there. Yeah, there's like claustrophobia. There's you know just knowing that if there is a murderer in there or something that yeah no totally. one can save her. I actually watched it with people who had never seen it before. Oh, cool. So I got to kind of experience that through their eyes and, and you know, their reactions and stuff. Because I got my friend Lexi to watch it with me and, and she hates horror movies. And I'm like, look, it's, you know, it's not what you think. It's more of a thriller. Just watch it. You'll love it. And she did. But she kept, you know, saying things to me like, oh, my God, is she going to get trapped in there? Is she going to get trapped in there? And I'm like, just, you know, calm down. <laughs> So it was it was interesting seeing it like that, you know? Yeah. Because it's been a long time since I saw it from the first time. So I know everything that's going to happen. So it's kind of helpful to see it, you know, from a fresh perspective. Yeah. Another one of the controversies surrounding this movie, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that are controversial or debated because it seems like this movie is kind of a, a touchstone for a lot of cultural debates um this is a less culturally relevant debate but um anthony hopkins won best actor and not best supporting actor for his role um despite not having much actual screen time and not being either the hero or the main antagonist in the picture i don't know what do you think about that i think it's fair because it's such an iconic role like he does such a good job his he fills up more space in such a short time than like most people could you yeah. know he's so powerful and that character is so good and so interesting and so unique like yeah 100% give anthony hopkins all the awards <laughs> yeah i i definitely see where you're coming from and i think the later history of the franchise has definitely borne that out um hopkins has returned to play hannibal uh, in several other films and all of the later films have focused on that character um, instead of uh clarice or buffalo bill or any anything else um mm-hmm. he's be- sort of become the focus of everything in a way that he isn't in terms of the structure of this movie so i agree with you there although I probably still would have, at the time, been annoyed because uh, it's it's a pet peeve of mine when they give, when they put people in best supporting actor or best actor based on how big the actor is or like oh, yeah. how popular the role is or something like that, as opposed to whether it's actually uh, like a main character versus a supporting character. Although the, I mean, those are those are categories that definitely have blurry edges. Like, um, I was so annoyed when, um, do you remember the remake of True Grit by the Coen brothers? Yes. Yes. Um, the actress who played, uh, the main character in that, I want to say her name was like Haley Steinfeld. I think that's right. She was a little girl. She's like, uh, 12 or 13 and they, she got nominated for best supporting actress instead of best lead actress. And I thought that was so dumb because she's playing the main character in the film. And not only that, it's the perspective character. So that character also narrates the film. 
And the whole thing is, it's her story that's being told in retrospect of how these events played out. And so not only is she the main character, she's in every single scene because we never see anything that that character didn't see in the movie. Um, and yet she gets supporting actress, I guess, because she's a little girl. <laughs> that's really shitty. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I heard that it was like a strategic decision, I guess. I don't know exactly how it works, um, but it's the way people were talking about it was like the movie studio put her in that category, um, like put her up for consideration for it, and then she got nominated for it instead of uh, Best Actress because they knew that Natalie Portman was going to win Best Actress for Black Swan. So they thought she would have more of a chance in that category. So I don't know. That kind of horse race stuff is so dumb. Yeah. I mean, I've become really, you know, disillusioned with award ceremonies and it's so political and yeah. 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 But anyway, um, he did, he did, uh, win in that category and the character has gone on to be so, iconic so we should probably talk about what in the silence of the lambs itself uh do you think makes that character so interesting or appealing that people have continued to be fascinated by him well i've expressed a lot of opinions about hannibal lecter that a lot of people have have like looked at me in horror and been like what what is wrong with you and i'm like oh so i'm not sure if my reasons for liking him are the same as everyone else's, but I definitely have a lot of things that I like. Okay. Well, what are the things? Um, so he's like a bad guy. He like eats people, right? Mm -hmm. That's generally frowned upon by society. I would agree. But he's such a nice guy and he's very <laughs> polite and has these great manners. And I think it was so... <laughs> Here we go. This is fucked up. I think it's really chivalrous that he like convinced that guy to kill himself for Clarice after he did that really nasty thing. Yeah, the guy who's like jerking off and then throws yeah. it at Clarice as she's leaving the yes prison. He Migs. He uh, yes, he uh, manipulated him into killing himself over that. And I'm yeah. just like, oh, how sweet. Yeah, so he, he likes the protagonist, and mm -hmm. we like the protagonist, Clarice. She's a very uh -huh. likable character, I think. So that kind of makes us like Hannibal. And it's not just that he likes her, right? He's um He respects her, right? In a world where a lot of the other characters don't. Like, uh, Chilton is totally condescending and an asshole to Clarice. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the other characters. And so there's this, this contrast, like, there, he he sees that she's formidable, even though um, she's a student, she's a trainee, and uh, she's a woman, with the, which the other characters are, like, sexist towards her. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a big part of how the movie makes us feel conflicted feelings about Hannibal, because we know that he's evil, but at the same time, he does have these admirable qualities. Yeah, he's a well, it's he's it's hard to describe because he's also kind of a good person. Mm. 
in a way? I think I might push back on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a ruthless murderer. <laughs> I'm just putting okay. that out there. Uh, uh-huh. He, he murders people. And, and it's not like Dexter or something where he has this rule that he only murders other murderers or like s- supremely evil people. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing that we learn about him almost in the film is when Chilton tells the story about how uh, like why they have to have the iconic face plate on him whenever he's let out of his cell because one time uh, he the nurse got too close to him and he basically ate her face. He, he like ripped out her tongue with his teeth and the whole time his heart rate didn't go above 80. Oh god. Yeah. Um so I think that that nurse might have some words for you if you're you want to say he's a good guy. Yeah, true. I can't help myself, okay? I have <laughs> issues. Well, in what way is he a good guy other than just his his respect and admiration for Clarice? Well, there's just something so charming about the end scene when they're on the phone together. Mm-hmm. Is it okay if I jump that far ahead? Sure. Okay, so he tells her that he's not going to come after her, like the world is far more interesting with her in it. And then he's going to go, There is he is going to go after that guy who is bad. True, Chilton. He wants, he wants some revenge on that dude. Mm-hmm. He's having an old friend for dinner. That's right, which is an iconic line from that film. Mm-hmm. Personally, my morals are a little bit skewed, and I'm aware of that. So take everything I say with a grain of salt when it comes to this. Yeah. I I, I like Lecter a lot as a villain, but I don't like him as a hero, which is what he becomes in the sequel, Hannibal. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and I think that's pretty faithful to the book. I think in the book Hannibal, which is the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, um, Harris has Hannibal and Clarice get married. Oh, so it does become a romance in the books. Interesting. And it sort of is in the movie as well. Um, totally. And uh, that's something that kind of bugs me, which tends to happen in movies, is when you take a, a really good antagonist and try to make him the protagonist. Because, I don't know, I just, I have trouble getting over the, you know, in this case, the eating people thing. Like, I'm sorry, I I just, I don't think that you're a good guy. And I'm not, I'm not rooting for Hannibal to win. And so I become emotionally detached from the things happening in the movie at that point. Mm Well, I think good probably isn't the right term. I'm not sure what the right term is. He's a he's a seductive figure. Um he's I think, you know, partly it's like we like anti-heroes, right? We like people who mm-hmm. combine uh elements that are kind of scary and threatening with other elements that we like. Um Lecter's very sophisticated and intelligent. Um and in a lot of ways he's superior to his captors um and uh and yet he is he is a monster at the same time um i think part of the appeal or part of what makes him so interesting is that we never really get an explanation of like 
what he thinks he's doing or you know like what his his own philosophy of life um yeah. we get hints at it um so uh we know that they torment lecter by showing him a quote-unquote gospel program so he's being forced to watch like some televangelist show on tv um like i don't know the 700 club or something um and that is for sure yeah they wheel that tv out to his cell and they make him watch that stuff like that definitely sets him up against like traditional uh judeo-christian morality um and uh he also has kind of a sense of humor about uh uh murder and torture and things of that nature so um he says at one point this is a quote from the film buffalo bill what a naughty boy he is <laughs> <laughs> so you Dude, get it you get a sense of his of he's his super funny <laughs> he is yeah he has a great sense of humor as well it's great and it's like so understated it's like very dry and you don't you know, always realize that he's joking, but he totally is, and it's fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. I'm having an old friend for dinner, and then that's just it. That's his closing statement. Right. It's super funny. I don't know. I, I imagine he's carrying around in his head some kind of Nietzschean idea that he's a kind of ubermensch, and so he has the right to uh, uh, murder other people that are lower forms of life or something like that. Um and I think oh. it would it would become less interesting if he actually expressed any of those ideas. But inst- he he really just refuses to explain himself at any point, right? Like uh, uh, Clarice says at one point, "You see a lot of things, Doctor. Have you ever tried pointing that brilliant analytical mind at yourself?" And she doesn't get an answer to that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a, a tip for people who are looking to write a really compelling antagonist is don't explain everything, you know, leave a lot to the imagination. Totally. That's true about a lot of things, especially in horror. Yeah. Yeah. People often talk about like jaws, you know, like how the, the mechanical shark didn't work. And so they kind of had to barely show the shark in the movie. And then that turned out to be way scarier that you almost never see it. Um, but here, this is a more uh, cerebral version of that, where we see we see Lecter, um, mm-hmm. but we don't understand him fully. The dialogue doesn't give us a clear window into his psychology. Yeah, and then we're kind of left to, you know, make shit up in our own head, and that's always scarier. Yeah. So. Another debate that people have about the movie is whether it's uh, misogynistic or feminist. So at the time of its release, um, there were people who decried it as a misogynist film due to the graphic images of violence against women that it contains. Um, But then on the other hand, it's also been viewed as a feminist picture showing the sex discrimination Clarice faces as a female FBI trainee. And leading us to side with her. Um, so do you have an opinion on who's right there? I think it's a feminist film. Totally. And I think they meant for it to be a feminist film even. Personally, just to get this out in, in the open air, I, I consider myself a feminist. Um, but one thing that, at least historically, uh, a lot of feminists have 
said that makes no sense to me is when something depicts violence against women that makes it misogynist so not just this movie but like a lot of things like um uh, american psycho there were like massive feminist protests at bookstores when that was released and they were like throwing red paint on the books and stuff um because they live in the real world because that's what happens Right. I mean, I just think, I just don't, I feel like there's a step in the argument missing, right? Like this thing depicts X, therefore it supports X. It's like, that doesn't you, make any you sense. You need something else, right? Like you could say, you could make the same argument about, like you could say, Donald Trump talks about immigrants a lot. That means he supports immigration. It's like, no, like yeah, that, that it makes no sense. Complete cockamamie nonsense. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sure there's probably a more sophisticated argument in a lot of these cases to be made. But um, here, you know, I mean, like you could argue this text is is glamorizing violence against women. But I don't think that's the case with Silence of the Lambs. No, not at all. The opposite. Um, yeah. And then um, the case for it actually being a feminist film i think is pretty strong um given the way that it really leads us to identify with clarice and see things from her perspective and see the way that the ways that she's discriminated against as a woman mm -hmm. totally so some examples of that um uh chilton's interactions with her he's like totally hitting on her and um in inappropriate ways and uh he clearly underestimates her because she's a woman um and she has to remind him at one point and this is a quote uva is not a charm school um so do you know what a charm school uh is heather um isn't that where you go and learn like manners and like fancy shit yeah it's like a finishing school it's like what women used to go to instead of like a real university right right um, so that I think is, you know, very clearly calling attention to this like male expectation that, oh, this is a woman. So her education is lesser, um, and she's not prepared for, you know, the serious guy stuff. So we've got Chilton, who's kind of like the model of this like sexist asshole guy. And then there's Crawford, who is a little more complicated, um, and a little more interesting. So Crawford does respect Clarice. He sees a lot of potential in her. He entrusts her with, you know, going to Hannibal and doing all this, you know, big people stuff, even though she's a trainee. And um but at the same time, uh when he needs to get the local law enforcement out of the way when they wanted to do the autopsy of the latest Buffalo Bill victim, he he uses the sexist assumptions or the um I don't know what you call it, of the other uh, police officers in order to do that. So he kind of says like, okay, well, there's some things that we need to talk about that uh, ladies shouldn't listen to. Or so I'm butchering this scene. Do you remember the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I, I, I don't know the exact dialogue either. So just go with it. Right. So um, he basically gets rid of these other police officers, but in a way that um reinforces 
their seeing of Clarice as as lesser. Um, mm-hmm. But then later on, where when they're in the car together, she brings this up, and it's like, hey, that wasn't cool. And he says, point taken. So, yeah. She tells him, like, they're learning from you. Like, they're looking to you to see how to be, and you just fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. And she calls him out on it, and he's like, it was, it's surprising how open to that criticism he was, which is good. Yeah, it's it's hard to, like, categorize him. Yeah, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting sequence of events. It kind of, I think it's neat in the way that it teaches us that um, it's not just assholes that end up, in some ways, oppressing Clarice because of her gender. It's just, like, this whole uh social structure and so even somebody like Crawford who respects her can sometimes see how he can use her gender at uh, and you know to his own advantage in that particular uh situation um and then another thing that I think is really interesting about the film's commentary on gender is um just the name Buffalo Bill so the serial killer's name is Jamie Gum or Jame Gum, but Buffalo Bill is kind of like uh, Jack the Ripper or something like that. It's a name that um, the newspapers use because they don't know his real name um, to refer to him. And it was invented because of something one of the police officers said at uh, when they were examining the body of one of the victims who had been skinned. He said... Uh, this one skins his humps. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's his, this is the explanation the movie provides for the um, the name Buffalo Bill. I think it's kind of interesting that the movie shows us how the media just runs with this nickname, def- despite the fact that it's uh, it's kind of grounded in the dehumanization of his victims as like. Uh, Buffalo. The movie also shows us that that can be actually dangerous for real people. Um, it's not just like an impoliteness kind of thing um, to dehumanize women. It also puts them in danger because when we see uh, footage on TV of, so it turns out that Bill's uh, latest victim, who is being held captive during the film, uh, is the daughter of a senator. And so her mother is on television um, talking to the captor and saying, you know, please give my daughter up and we won't seek to kill you or whatever she's saying. Mm -hmm. But uh, Clarice notices that she keeps using the daughter's name over and over. And she's like, oh, that's smart. It's trying to humanize her because uh, it's less likely that the killer Mm -hmm. will murder her if he sees her as a human being. Um, and we also see that that's true in the way that Bill talks to uh, his victim, right? This is a famous scene, right? It puts the lotion in the basket or else it gets the hose again. He doesn't mm-hmm. speak to her as you. He speaks to her as it. Um, so dehumanizing someone is part of the process of ultimately killing them. That's a really good point. Well, so I guess we're in agreement about that. Um, the other thing that... Um, people often criticize the film for as being transphobic. Um, Mm -hmm. So 
this is uh, because Buffalo Bill is killing these women and uh, skinning them in order to make a woman's suit because he wants to become a woman. Um, and this is like central to his character, right? And also to the, like the clues that help them track him down. They're sort of figuring out over the course of the movie that this is what he is about at the same time as the audience is. Um, so like this, the symbol that he chooses for himself is this death's head moth, which is on all mm -hmm. the film's advertisements as well. Um, he puts the moth pupa down the throat of one of the victims and they recover it in the autopsy. Um, so that's a symbol of his transformation. Um, so he's somebody who's like obsessed with uh, changing gender, essentially. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely an argument to be made that the film is transphobic. On the other hand, um, there's also uh, a scene in which Hannibal Lecter explains that Bill is not really a quote-unquote transsexual, but just wants to be one because he hates himself so much and he wants to be anything other than what he is. Um, mm -hmm. So wh what do you think about this? Well, I have always found the movie to be transphobic, personally, but I'm also like smart enough to realize that this is not an accurate depiction of someone who is trans. So, you know, it's, it's not a huge deal to me, but I know it is to a lot of other people. Yeah. I mean, and um, the film is kind of like signposting the fact that it's not an accurate depiction. I almost feel like that scene is there to, as like, uh, what do you call like the legal legalese that, that, uh, gets you out of being sued for something? Um, oh, it's like almost there to protect the film from criticism on that score, right? So that they can yeah. say, "Hey, hey, you know, we're not. This isn't a transgender person." But it's it's uh, such a close idea yeah. that uh, they should have realized that people would read the film in that way, and that it would um, reinforce uh, stereotypes that transgender people are violent. Which, um, I mean, you see that even today with like the debate over. Uh, bathrooms that you know the conservative position is like transgender people shouldn't be allowed into the um bathroom of their gender because they're gonna go in and attack people in there um uh -huh. and so there's still this stereotype of transgender people being somehow like sexually aggressive um which is not supported by any facts um, I actually spoke to a couple of my trans friends about this movie. Mm -hmm. And I asked my friend Stevie what she thought about it. And she gave me permission to use this quote. So I'm going to read you what she said to me. She says, I'm not a fan of Buffalo Bill's character. It was during a time when being transgender wasn't addressed very often in the media and entertainment, and I feel like during a time when society was fairly impressionable when it comes to something not commonly understood, the character painted a picture that left a lasting impression that someone born with a male body who acts and dresses feminine is inherently mentally ill and potentially dangerous, especially because he kidnapped someone. Buffalo Bill was pretty ambiguous, and you could say that 
they weren't created to portray any particular specific sexual orientation or gender identification, basically just a weirdo creep. Yet whether directly or indirectly, the character did leave an imprint on the minds of the masses that could have made them uneasy around a male to female trans person or caused them to believe in some way that being transgender is a frightening mental illness that could include behaviors like delusion, violence, kidnapping, etc. And then she offered some more information. She said, a more accurate and appropriate portrayal of an MTF trans woman for its time was the role David Duchovny played as Agent Denise Bryson on Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Not only was the character treated with respect by others, but was a confident and authoritative person. So that's what Stevie had to say about all that. Oh, that's really uh, insightful. And that's mm-hmm. a great point about, like, you have to take into account, kind of like we were talking about with whether the movie's a horror movie or not, you have to take into account what else was out at the time. Right. Um, with regard to transgender issues, like there was so little representation at the time that that might make it extra harmful. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like even the quote in the film uh, explaining that Buffalo Bill is not uh, a transsexual as they uh, termed it in those days um, is I guess less exculpatory than it might seem. So uh, the exact quote Hannibal Lecter says is, uh, Billy hates himself and thinks it makes him a transsexual, but Billy's pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. Which is oh kind of rich, kind of rich coming from from you, Lecter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but I mean, so that sort of suggests that being a transsexual is at least a little bit savage and terrifying. Uh, yeah. Though, yeah, a thousand times less than what Buffalo Bill is still. Um, and I, I mean, I think their their whole discussion in that scene uh, takes for granted that uh, transsexuality is uh, some kind of mental disorder. I guess the point is, like, the film, I think, is still kind of locked in that mentality with regard to uh being transgender and uh it doesn't really do anything to challenge that although it doesn't it does make clear that what's going on with buffalo bill is not typical maybe that this is a good transition to another question that i had which is what's the relationship between clarice and her two antagonists in the film um hannibal lecter and and buffalo bill um so when you go to like a writing class or whatever, I think they tell you that the protagonist and the villain should have some kind of meaningful relationship. Um, not like, you know, Darth Vader has to be Luke's father, but he, the, the antagonist has to sort of represent something about the protagonist. So it might be like the pro- antagonist represents like the opposite values from the protagonist, or it could be that the antagonist is a kind of shadow self to the protagonist. So it represents like extreme versions of the darker aspects of the protagonist. So um, an example, this might be uh, uh, Batman and the Joker. So like Batman is trying to enforce order and the Joker is, you know, trying to create anarchy. Um, But I don't know. I mean, this is like one of the oldest storytelling things ever. Like how many movies are there where the, antagonist says 
we are not so different, you and I, to the hero at one point. Like, that's like one of the most overused lines in movies, right? Um, yes. So, how do you think about this in Silence of the Lambs, Heather? I, I don't see it. Hmm. So, if it's there, enlighten me. Well, so, we are talking about, you think that there's uh, a legitimate possibility for a romance between Clarice and Lecter. Um, and I want to say, I don't think it's going to work out. Um, <laughs> because yeah. I think the movie sets Lecter up as definitely sharing some things with Clarice. For one thing, they're both disempowered in some ways, and they don't like that. They don't like being disempowered. They want other people to uh, respect them. And um, so Lecter, for instance, doesn't like to be tested. We know that, right? A census taker once tried to test him. That didn't uh -huh. end up well for no. that guy. We also see how people are always staring at Clarice, and she has to deal with other people's expectations for her and other people not respecting her. Um, also, people are always trying to use Lecter for their own ends, right? And he doesn't like that either. So he uh, fucks over Chilton when Chilton tries to use him to get ahead in his career. Clarice also doesn't like being a pawn. So she finds out that her boss, Crawford, has sort of been using her by sending her to Lecter. He hasn't been telling her everything that he knows about what Lecter knows and what they're trying to get out of him. And Crawford explains, well, if, if I told you, then you would know, and Lecter would know that you knew, right? So you can't hide things from Lecter. Um, and so right. then he wouldn't be willing to, to spill the beans. Um, but we sort of, we see that Clarice really doesn't like being put into situations where she's being manipulated, even if it's for the greater good. Um, so that's something they have in common. Um, but I think the core of Clarice's character is this, uh, this story about the, the lambs, right? That gives us the title of the film. Um, oh, God. Where yeah. she, as a, as a girl, was uh, sort of adopted by this family of ranchers. And in the middle of the night, she hears screaming and goes over and sees that the lambs are being slaughtered. And she tries to save one of the lambs, um, but she ends up not being able to. Um, and the movie, I think, positions that that scene as like the cornerstone of of her character. She's somebody who wants to save innocent people, or in this case, animals. Um, she wants to stop uh, suffering. She's empathetic, ultimately, and. Uh, so in the scene where we, we get that story, it seems like that story sort of affects Lecter, right? Like this is the thing that he's been trying to get out of her. He's gratified by having gotten it out of her. Um, and then as soon as she leaves, uh, he, he orders uh, a second dinner, uh, lamb chops, extra rare. <laughs> so, oh, so we, we see that. Lecter understands Clarice, right? He he uses this story about her to get a sense of who she is as a person. Um, but we also see that he's utterly incapable of the empathy that she feels so intensely um, for animals and for other people. 
Yeah. Okay. So while Lecter is in some ways a parallel to Clarice, and we see that he's sort of superior to his captors in some ways, he also, I think, represents the cruelty of society that Clarice is trying to fight against. What do you think about uh, Buffalo Bill's relationship to Clarice? I don't know. My thoughts on that kind of connect to what we're talking about the, with the film being transphobic, because mm-hmm. um, Bill is somebody who is definitely transgressive with regard to gender norms, um, and Clarice is as well, right? She's like a tomboy. They're both also people that want to become something other than what they are. Um, I think in Lecter's first interview with Clarice, he notices that she has a, a, like a residual accent that she's had to work to disguise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of like trying to leave behind her past and turn herself into somebody else, somebody that people will respect. Um, and uh, she also had a traumatic childhood past. We're told that James Gum was horribly abused as a child, which is why he's so messed up. Um, so maybe he kind of represents like how Clarice could go wrong as somebody who's experienced trauma and who has parts of herself that she wants to change. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. I get that. Like he's gone all the way in the direction of like self-loathing. Whereas she has built up her self-esteem and her confidence. How do you think about the sort of journey that Clarice goes on during the film? Um, it's very much like focused on her internal psychological journey. Like we get several flashbacks to her childhood um, in addition to the title of the film being taken from uh, her account of uh, something that happened during her childhood. Do you feel like she changes as a character over the course of the story or like learns something about herself? I don't know if it's her learning something about herself or if it's us learning something about her. Hmm. So it's more like her character is just revealed over the course of the yes, film. Yes, that's how I see it. I feel like she was always that much of a badass, but we didn't get a chance to see it until, you know, she was put up against adversity yeah i mean it's kind of interesting because it i think it would have been like a cleaner narrative if she had heard the screaming of the lambs and not done anything about it right because like lector is saying you know he his understanding of the the meaning of the story is so now you're a FBI trainee and you want to save people because you think that if you can save Bill's victim then the the crying of the lambs will stop. Yeah. That's so, heavy shit. So he's got this sense that like this is a psychological loop that she needs to close in order to achieve closure. Um mm-hmm. but the interesting thing is like it's not like she didn't try to save the lambs, she totally did. Um she says she got several miles away with it. This little girl holding a, a lamb um, That's right. in the snow uh, before she was caught. So it's not like she needed to 
grow from a person who was too scared to do anything into a, the hero who saves the day. It's just like she failed in the first instance because there really was no way to succeed. And in this That's instance, right. she's able to succeed. That's right. That's exactly right. So I guess I guess I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. That's called agreeing. I know it's very foreign to you, but mm. that's what it feels like. But I guess I also disagree. Um, of course you do. Let me die of shock. What? Well, so we were talking about how Buffalo Bill might represent uh, a darker side of Clarice. And I think it's it's interesting how in the conclusion of the film, she has to kind of like go into his world and, and it's she has to go down into the basement. Um, and this is like a, a frequent kind of symbolism where like the basement or the subterranean area will sort of represent the, the unconscious, the id. And then the upstairs kind of represents the, the um, part of ourselves that we want to present to the world that we, that we hide the, the dark secrets below. Um, and we, I def- we definitely see that with, uh, buffalo bill right like i don't think that's a hard case to make that his subterranean lair sort of represents his his id like the the nasty parts of his personality and when he's upstairs it looks all normal it looks like a normal house and he acts like a normal human being Mm -hmm. and so she has to like go down into his these depths of his psyche um in order to save the girl and she kills him so maybe that's sort of symbolic of her needing to explore the darker sides of darker side of her own personality, her own psychological hang-ups, which she also has had to explore with Lecter in order to get to this point and sort of conquer those things about her in order to come back out and like be a healthy person again. So, I don't know. I guess that's my reading of what's going on with with Clarice's journey. It's very much like a, a hero's journey. I just read um, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with the Thousand Faces. I don't know if you've read that one. I think I loaned it to you at some point. Really? Yeah, but you didn't read it. <laughs> Oops. But um, it's funny how you remember that. You can't remember like things I said last week, but you always remember what books you lent me, and I didn't read. <laughs> Yeah, or you never returned. I remember that, too. Do I still have some that I didn't give back? You have a copy of uh, Middle Middle March by George Eliot that I loaned to you like 10 years ago. (laughs) It was not 10 years. Uh, I think it was, yeah, something like that. What a drama queen. (laughs) So (laughs) that's totally accurate. I do remember things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's my interpretation of the the climax of the film, which is like another moment of the film that's really scary is when the lights get shut off and then oh Clarice is alone in the dark with the killer and he has his night vision goggles. Yes, it's a really good scene. It's another high anxiety scene. Yeah. What I think is neat about that scene too is I think it functions as a a great final beat to the story of uh sexism and perspective in the film right like we okay. talked about how how sort of power comes along with seeing 
other people and being disempowered comes with being seen like how Hannibal doesn't like to be tested and um we get you know people sort of staring at Clarice all the time here and there's a there's a broader cultural story to be told about that with uh you know the male gaze in film like a lot of feminist mm-hmm. film criticism has pointed out how movies are uh usually uh shot in such a way as to imitate the the gaze of a male viewer so they're looking at people in the way that men would look instead of in the way that women would so in the in the climax we see this final confrontation not from Clarice's perspective as we've seen most of the film but from Bill's we see the night vision goggle view of Clarice um so when she turns around and shoots him it's like she's almost like shooting the male gaze itself that's sort of become the antagonist okay yeah it's a it's a really good scene you know even if you don't put all those layers on it so any other thoughts about uh silence of the lambs i feel like i was on my way to saying something and then i got super sidetracked i I mean i don't know i'm not really paying attention to what i'm saying (laughs) okay that's good that's how you make a good podcast just talk and don't even pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth yeah um i I mean i probably have a lot more thoughts and opinions on it that i'll think of later but you know that's how it goes so i'm just gonna go with uh i'm done all right i guess i am too um so normally we tell you at this point what we're going to be watching for next time but but we didn't talk about it well we did um oh we did yeah and we decided for our next episode we're not going to watch anything we're going to do a like a retrospective because this is our 10th episode um can you believe that we've made it to 10 episodes in just two years (laughs) yeah it's amazing um (laughs) that was a joke yeah the joke because it takes us forever to get an episode out yeah we're doing about one a month now i'm pretty i'm happy with that yeah that's fine there's people who do that on purpose yeah yeah with us it's more like yeah every week we say oh we'll do it this week and then we don't um it's it's difficult to sync our schedules yeah and i've been super busy lately right so it's not our fault the end but uh we're gonna do a episode sort of looking back at the 10 movies we've covered so far we're gonna each come up with a ranking of the 10 films and we'll compare notes talk about which one was our favorite and why and stuff like that and which one was the most fucking disgusting yeah Uh uh-huh um (laughs) that's those are my only two i have a favorite and one that's just so disgusting i don't ever want to think about it again okay so get hyped for that (laughs) and um i'll probably say this again next time but um we're looking for ideas for what we should do for our next 10 episodes uh i've got some movies that i'm thinking about i really like the movie lake mungo um i know people tend to not listen when we do uh, a more obscure movie but i don't care um i like lake (laughs) mungo a lot It has one of the worst <laughs> titles, like Lake. I, I for the longest time, people were recommending it to me, and I never watched it because I was like Lake Mungo. It's probably about a giant crocodile or something. Um, 
it is not. It is an amazing film. It has nothing to do with crocodiles. Um, and it's it's really good. So we'll do that at some point. We were talking about the Babadook. Um, it follows mm-hmm. uh, older older stuff. We were thinking about like them, Alien and Aliens, the Evil Dead movies. I don't know. Yeah. We got a lot of a lot of ideas. We also want to start doing some bad movies. Um, so I want to do Darkness Falls because it's the scariest movie to Heather. You want to do? <laughs> okay. okay. Heather, tell him how it's so scary. Okay, well, that's not exactly fair. I It was the first horror movie I ever saw, and I was 13, and it was fucked up, okay? Yeah. And yeah, so it was is, it was the scariest movie at the time that you saw it. It, it was, because it was the only scary, quote-unquote, scary movie I'd ever seen in my life. So my mom didn't want me to watch horror movies. So we were thinking maybe it could be, like, therapeutic to see it now and see how fucking stupid it is yeah because i saw it at a much later date when i was already a grizzled badass and mm-hmm. uh it, i did not find it scary and i i think it kind of sucks um so i That's think that would I be heard. an interesting conversation to have like you know how does your opinion of it differ now from what it was back then and what made it so scary and things like that yeah um, For sure. I also want to do Troll 2 at some point. I watched that fairly recently and I, I loved it. It's hilarious. Okay. Um, so yeah, so those are the ideas we have. But um, we want to hear from uh, you listeners, if if any of you exist. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you want to... screaming into the void or not? Yeah, let us know if you do exist. Um, you could just make a comment and say, I exist. Or... Yeah. Because uh, we're at, at Cinematicon Pod. Yeah, that we're on Twitter, um, at Cinematicon Pod. So you could tweet at us. Is that what it is? Yes, that's tweet, right. Tweet at us, and um, you could leave a comment wherever you're listening to this. On even if it's hate mail, that's fine. Just say something for real. Yeah, like you could. Well, don't don't get too explicit. Don't say like I'm gonna kill you in your bed i'm gonna cut you into pieces you know like you know like it keep it generic if you want to write something hateful but sure write write something hateful um or tell us how much you love the show uh tell us if you have any ideas for stuff that we could watch we'll definitely uh take that into consideration yeah yeah totally and uh we'll look forward to all the hate mail. All the hate mail that we're going to get now. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>